Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Beth Slattery, head of the upper school at Harvard Westlake. In this episode, Beth speaks about the challenges of starting a new role and leading a virtual campus during a pandemic, including perhaps her most profound challenge. How does one recognize from a distance when a student is struggling? When we can't see a change in a student's disposition or posture? Or from the student's perspective, when the safe haven of a supportive adult's office is no longer in view? How do we remain active and accessible to a child at risk? Beth and I also talk about gender, both Beth's doctoral research into single gender schools and the importance of supporting and encouraging girls and women in every educational and professional context. Beth also describes growing up the child of educators in Brockton, Massachusetts, and how her career ambitions migrated from Senate politics to USC admissions to college counseling. Finally, Beth's advice on parenting, which has been quoted by several guests of this podcast, including Rick Commons, will leave you inspired. This is The Supporting Cast. Welcome to the supporting cast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, excited to have you. So, um, first question I'm asking everyone this. Obviously, the last nine months or so have been strange and challenging on all sorts of levels. And I want to get to what that means for Harvard Westlake and what that's meant for you and your new role. But first, starting just with you personally, how are you doing? How are your kids? How are your family enduring the uncertainty of this period? I think we're actually doing okay. I, despite being an extrovert, uh, I'm also an optimist by nature. And so I've found sort of lots of silver linings. I'm a big blessing in disguise kind of person. And so I've always joked with people that I don't relax very well. Um, I like keeping busy and being productive. And so the fact that this has kind of forced me into some of that, you know, so I've not read this much in years and years and years. I've not... I'm not someone who binge watches TV shows because I always feel like, oh goodness, like I shouldn't I be doing something else? And I also, I'm not a good cook and our family never really got to eat together very often. My kids were always doing sports and, you know, my husband was always teaching in the evenings. And so the idea of being able to actually spend time with them, with my whole family has been, I've been just super grateful for that. So I'm doing well. My, you know, four kids are in various degrees of how this is working for them. For most of them, it's actually okay. Um, yeah. Most of, most of my kids are introverts, and so they don't mind the being by themselves. And, you know, I think they've missed some of the socialization and that sort of thing. But actually, and my husband's an introvert too, so he's managed pretty well also. Mm-hmm. I also think we are super grateful for the fact that we've been able to remain employed and yeah. um, nobody in our family's gotten ill, um, seriously ill. And and so I just think you have to be grateful for the ways in which it has provided some maybe respite from the grind of daily life. It's interesting that you categorize different people in your family as introverts or extroverts. Do you find that that quality, either with colleagues at Harvard-Westlake or with students, is somewhat determinate of how people are 
handling the isolation? It, it wasn't until I gave birth to an introvert that I really thought about how much that mattered in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, you only know your own way of being. And so you sort of assume that people see the world that you, the way that you see them. And uh, then when my first son was born and he clearly was like, just craved time to himself and found being around lots of people really draining as opposed to energizing the way that yeah. I found it. And so I really started to appreciate that quality. And then, you know, my husband is the same way that really his brain works so much better when he has downtime and, and time away from people to actually process things, which is not how I process things. And I have generally found that a lot of introverts, their relief in not having to constantly like do a commute and then get and, and be surrounded by people to have some more optionality about their interaction with the world yeah. has been a relief. And again, that's an oversimplification of it, but that has been the case, I think, for lots of the people that I work with and the people in my own family. Interesting. So this is also a period of change for you in that, and we'll get to your career in college admission and in college counseling and being a dean at Harvard-Westlake, but this is also your first year as head of the upper school. And so I'm curious, obviously it's strange <laughs> starting a new role in quarantine and, and virtually. You've obviously thought about the well-being of students <laughs> for a long time, the students yeah. that have been assigned to you and you've been their dean. But now you have sort of a broader group to think about. You have more students to think about, and now you have faculty and staff mm -hmm. to think about as well. So I wonder how that transition has been for you, particularly in a time where you can't see them in person. And, and if you're an extrovert and management for you is maybe easier when you can sit across from someone or, or sure. sit around a, a table and talk something through, how has that challenge been for you in this new role? Sure. Well, I would say that, you know, lots of people made the assumption that, oh, this must be so difficult to make this transition and during a pandemic. And I've joked about that some, but the truth is that there are actually ways in which it's been an easier on-ramp hmm. than if I had been in person. One way is that when you're managing a campus, so much kind of drama happens in the physical space. You know, kids are interacting constantly and you're managing those very, those constant interactions. Same thing with faculty. And when you're not in person, there's fewer instances of drama or crisis uh -huh. that happen hmm. Because the an online classroom is a much more controlled classroom, and there aren't the interactions so much that happen just in the quad or the, the casual kind of interactions that can sometimes cause drama or issues on a, on a high school campus. Um, yeah. So I've been relieved from some of those responsibilities. The other thing is that when something happens, if you're in person, it's super easy for somebody to just wander into your office the second something bad happens to complain about it and ask that you <laughs> mitigate it. Yeah. Um, you know, my office is down the hall from the cafeteria. Like it would be super easy for people to just divert into that space. And that's, that often would happen as a dean that people just, the second something happens, a kid migrates immediately to your office and either cries or calls their parent from your office or that sort of thing. And now if something happens that requires my attention, people have to be super intentional about deciding how big a deal is, is this that I'm going to then reach out to Beth over email and then ask her about it or ask her to do something about it. And yeah. so 
so there isn't the drama that I think happens in person. The other piece is I feel overall that everyone has given me and I hope other people in their lives so much grace during this time period. Mm -hmm. I just think there's an overwhelming understanding that this is so hard for everybody and people's priorities seem to have taken shape in a different way. And so I do think that parents and faculty members are sort of thinking, okay, do I really need, like, is that really that big a concern right now? You know, maybe I should just focus on, okay, things are going, okay, everybody's doing the best that they can. I don't need to turn that into a thing. And so, yeah. so I do think I'm, um, I don't want to say being let off the hook, but that's probably true in, to some extent. And I would like to think I've built up a fair amount of goodwill in our community over, yeah. you know, 16 years of being here. And so I do think that people know me as someone with good intentions. And, and, and so I, I think I'm getting the benefit of the doubt. Um, yeah. And maybe that would have happened anyway. Uh, to address your question about thinking about um, the well-being of everybody in the community, it is really hard to not be in person, to not see kids. If you worked with kids long enough, it's like you can and you know them, you can tell by looking at them, there's, there's something going on with them. And uh, yeah. I don't have any regular interaction with kids um, because I don't teach a class. Well, I teach, I co-teach Life Lab, but I'm not seeing them regularly. So I don't have that way of managing things. And I also think this pandemic has had such a disparate effect on different people. You know, it's like we make these assumptions, oh, this this part is hard for everybody. Well, everybody's reacting differently. There are some people who really thrive in online learning. Um, there are some people who this has just been a disaster. Um, there are people for mm. whom they love the time with their family. Other people, home is not a comfortable place for them to be. Right. And so, you know, trying to manage what everybody needs. And then we talk about adults. We have faculty who have little kids. We have faculty who have aging parents and trying to know everybody well enough to manage their, um, again, disparate needs is a challenge. And what about, you mentioned that you don't have the casual interactions and, and there's less drama. What about when kids are isolated and having problems? Uh, yeah. What are the ways, because you can't just look at them and look at the way their posture is and look at the way their, you know, their, their eyes are drooping or whatever, if you know that kid so well, how are you informed and what is the mechanism for someone like you to be informed when a kid is struggling? Because as I know right now, there are actually kids a small number of kids who are coming to the upper school mm -hmm. who are getting some extra help who are struggling. Yeah, so we've had to, again, be much more intentional about the way that we identify kids who are struggling. So, and we had to really rely more heavily on teachers and parents to let us know what's going on with their kids because normally the deans, you know, they have a way of, they know their kids really well, they see them yeah, every day. Right. That and was your so, role. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, but that's not obviously happening in the same way. So we have, you know, more check-ins kind of asking deans to, because you can't depend on the drop-in, they've really been scheduling drop-ins. Like, so they uh, have their calendars set up, an online calendar system that allows for just like a 15-minute check-in, you know, for kids to sign up for. Cool. We created a form that, that faculty need to fill up that has a bunch of criteria that the counselors and learning specialists helped us identify these are characteristics of kids who are struggling so that people knew what signs to be looking for. And, you know, worst case scenario, we're overreacting. I would rather check in with a kid because they seem not themselves and find out that it's nothing than not check in with that kid. So we've been trying to actually say, what are the things that demonstrate risk? 
And then we've always had a standing weekly meeting with all of the deans, all of the counselors, the learning specialist, myself, where we actually talk about kids in crisis. And so we create kind of a database of what are we seeing? And then we essentially triage. Okay, who's going to be the person mm. that's going to reach out to that kid? What are the next steps? Okay, if that doesn't work, we do follow up with, you know, each week when we, okay, what happened last week with that kid that we talked about? So, you know, for a school our size, I've always felt pretty good about the fact that kids yeah. don't fall through the cracks in the way that you might ex expect. Um, people yeah. really are paying attention. Yeah, it sounds like it. I want to change gears a bit before we get to your story. Something that I find fascinating about you is that <laughs> you did some academic research on gender and education. And obviously the notions about gender are changing mm -hmm. and our understanding about gender is changing. But I guess if you could start by talking about what your research was and kind of what are the conclusions that you drew, and that's particularly relevant at a co-educational school like sure. Harvard-Westlake when some parents are thinking about, particularly with their daughters, sure. um, their, their, their sons too, but more often with their daughters sending their, their child to a single gender school. So I'll back up and tell you how some of it started. I, I yeah. became interested in gender issues in college because I went to Georgetown University, which is Catholic University, and a very large number of kids came to Georgetown from single-sex high schools. And I went to a huge public high school that was obviously mm -hmm. co-ed and didn't really know anybody that went to I like I, I didn't know that single-sex education was a thing. And I uh, unfortunately found some kind of negative behaviors towards women on behalf of the boys who had attended all boys schools. I found that there was, it seemed like there was this culture of what felt to me like misogyny that I had never experienced before. And it was hmm. heavily perpetrated by this group of boys who had really not encountered their female peers in classes. And so there was a lot of back before it was a thing mansplaining and a lot of like talking mm. over girls or being less respectful to female professors than it appeared to me. And so I started to wonder about that. And, um, but, and so it was just sort of this back of my mind thing. And then when I went to graduate school um, and I went to graduate school sort of shortly after I graduated from college, partially because I had just moved to Los Angeles and I didn't have any friends. And I thought, Oh, grad school seems like a way to make friends. <laughs> uh, and so I started being interested in research and then I ended up just continuing after my master's degree because my master's degree counted toward a PhD. I was like, sure, I'll just keep going. Um, I never really yeah. planned on getting a PhD, but, and so my, my dissertation ended up being actually the flip side of things. It was about whether or not single sex for girls has yeah. the kind of the positive impact that we're given the impression that it does. And yeah. um, my research was qualitative. So the idea of generalizing, you know, sweeping generalizations, I, I can't make those. But uh, specifically what I did is I followed a cohort of young women who went to single sex high schools and followed them through the first two years of attending a co-ed college, because I essentially ah. wanted to see what happened if the positive benefits that they perceived that they had going to an all girls school did those continue when they went to college? Like, so once men were reintroduced into the educational environment, did they sustain that? You know, things like academics. I, I specifically looked at academic and social self-esteem as measures. Yeah. And what I ended up finding was that 
academic self-esteem stayed high, that in fact, that mm. there was something about that environment. Now, I wasn't comparing it to girls at co-ed schools, so I couldn't really say that girls at co-ed schools didn't have that same level. It just was demonstrating that for this set of girls, they did continue to feel comfortable sitting in the front of the class, raising their hand. Um, yeah. The social self-esteem, however, really was much more problematic, and it was not for the mm. reasons you might think. It I thought it was just going to be, oh, well, they're not comfortable around boys. And so it's awkward to, you know, how do you all of a sudden live in a dorm and it's co-ed. And, but really what it was is that girls' schools tend to be so tight-knit that this group of girls couldn't assimilate to college because they stayed close with their high school friends, that they just mm. did not want – they were like, I had this great experience with this group of girls, and so those are my friends. And it took them an extra year. So most of them mm. had assimilated by the end of sophomore year, but for they were finding that their friends who went to co-ed schools, freshman year was great for most of those kids. Like they had yeah. no problem kind of making a, a co-ed group of friends. But the girls at single-sex schools either had very few friends in college in their freshman year, or they certainly didn't make male friends. And they were still, they still reported that their high school friends were much closer than their college friends. So now, you know, working at Harvard Westlake, you are working at a, a co-educational mm -hmm. school. And I don't know if, if you've talked to students at Harvard Westlake about attending single sex colleges, or you've talked to parents who are, you know, let's say they have a son who is at Harvard Westlake, and then they have a daughter who's applying mm -hmm. and they're considering a, a great and there are some great single-sex all-girls schools in Los Angeles. How has it become relevant anew to you working at Harvard-Westlake? I guess I've come to the feeling that for, for some girls, it might be the right thing. But the truth is we live in a co-ed world. And Harvard-Westlake has demonstrated to me that there are co-ed schools out there where people who identify as female thrive. Harvard-Westlake mm -hmm. is one of those places. Mm -hmm. While there are some things that we found when we did some research about the experience of students who identify as female at Harvard-Westlake that showed that mm -hmm. there were some tendency of girls when they got a grade they weren't happy with to be internally sort of self-loathing. You know, it was a little bit of like, why, why, why am I not smart enough to get a better grade? And that yeah. boys, when they got a grade they didn't like, it was much more external where it was like, why is that teacher so stupid? Like that they gave me a bad grade, you know? Um, and again, sweeping generalizations. But, yeah. but, but the truth is that girls overwhelmingly felt that the, the Harvard-Westlake environment was one where girls were encouraged to thrive and be capable and be successful. And we, we have female valedictorians. Girls routinely are at the top of our class. We have, you know, we still yeah. have some work to do, I would say, in the physical sciences and in some of our very top math classes. But by and hmm. large, we actually see a fair amount of parity. You know, our AP Chem classes are actually um, more heavily female, partially, in my opinion, because we've often had female teachers teaching those classes. And there's evidence that demonstrates that if you can't see it, you can't be it. There's a lot mm -hmm. of evidence that, you know, people need mentors that look like them, um, whether that be a gender issue or uh, race or ethnicity. And so I think the way it's manifested itself in my career is this deep-seated belief that the co-ed environment actually is a better environment both for girls and for boys because we also want our mm -hmm. boys 
to be in a place where they see women who are successful and thriving. And, and I think taking them out of an environment, I don't know, I'm not sure it always allows people to fulfill the potential that they have, because it, I I always wonder if girls ever think, I wonder what I would do if I were at a co-ed school, would I still be able to be the top kid in this class? And the truth is Harvard Westlake Mm. is proving, yeah, you can still be the top kid and be a girl. And Harvard Westlake is proudly co-ed for, for, you know, all the reasons that you describe. But I wonder, is there a place at Harvard Westlake because women, those who identify as women face particular challenges? We know there are, are great disparities in pay, in corporate boards, in business, in law, in medicine. Is there a space and should there be a space at a co-educational school like Harvard Westlake for, for those who identify as women to have a conversation about being women and facing those particular challenges? And if so, kind of how? Yeah, and I think that there are spaces in, you know, we have a newly revamped gender studies class uh, yeah. that it has pretty robust enrollment. Um, we have a enrollment really this year, yeah. uh, vibrant Empower, which is sort of a women's empowerment group that is obviously open to people of all genders, but has really, again, been thriving. And so I think that most of our students who identify as female would say that they feel like there's a space for them to thrive and and talk Mm. about these issues. And I think we have a lot of faculty, you know, again, of all genders who actually are really empowering to to girls and people who identify as non-binary. And and so um, I don't know, like, again, we're not perfect, but I, I do think we've stepped into a space that feels like like gender is not particularly confining anymore the way that I would say maybe. 16 years ago when I started, I, I'm not sure I totally would have said that. I, it, it, it would have, yeah. it did feel maybe a little bit more like that, that boys were sometimes dominating the conversation. It just doesn't feel that way to me anymore. That's great. Because as, as gender becomes non-binary mm-hmm. in the way that you're describing, and there's, that's a whole other mm-hmm. conversation that is so complex and challenging and important for us all to be having, being female still is a particular challenge as we talked about. And with the movements around Me Too and, mm-hmm. and the Women's March and so forth, it's, it's good to know that there are girls at a co-ed school or those who identify as female are, are able to have that type of a conversation, yeah. even at Harvard Westlake. So I want to get to kind of your origins. Uh, where did you, you grew up on the East Coast. I did. Right? I grew up in a town called Brockton, a city called Brockton, Massachusetts. And what were your parents, what did they do? Sure. So my dad was actually a high school principal for uh, 40 ah. years. He wow. So he started off as an English teacher and then became an assistant principal. And then for most of the time that I was growing up, he was either a middle or high school principal. And my mom, she was a teacher. So she was an elementary school teacher. Mm. She came to that a bit later. So my parents got married quite young. So they met in high school and they got married when my mom was 19 and my dad was 22 and uh, are still together. So they've been married for Wow. 53 years now. And they are two peas in a pod still. And my, my mom is incredibly bright. And yet she, when she got married, she dropped out of college to be a wife. And then she very quickly got pregnant with my sister, who's five years older than me. And so she stayed at home with us. And then after I was born, two years after I was born, my brother, Mike was born and Mike is severely developmentally disabled. Mm. And so my mom I think her way of managing that, because, you know, this is the 70s and, you know, not much was known about severe autism and there weren't 
the same kinds of resources. And she felt the best way to support my brother was to volunteer in his class. So she would, starting when he was in kindergarten, when we first went to school, she would be kind of a teacher's aide. And then she gradually mm. developed this love for teaching. And so she went back to college and she graduated from college at 38, the same year my sister graduated from high school and became an elementary school teacher and, uh, and then got a master's degree in teaching and, um, and did that for until she retired. So she was a teacher for, wow. I guess, for about 25 years. Yeah. So they they're an incredible inspiration to me. They are just two of the finest human beings on the planet. Hmm. Um, they're really pretty extraordinary. I'm sure they influenced you in terms of your path to being an educator. And if so, kind of how? Was it something they believed about education or something about the quality of life that they enjoyed? Or what was so it? So it's interesting because I did not think that I was going to become an educator. I, yeah. you know, I... I Maybe for that reason. Maybe. Right? Um, I just, you know. <laughs> Want to do something yeah, different. Yeah, I thought, oh, and, and also I had these really grandiose ideas of like doing something really big with my life. What I really wanted to do was be a U.S. senator. I hmm. wanted to run for office. I was very interested in the way the government worked. I, you know, when I was in high school, I could name every U.S. senator, all 100 of them. Wow. And, and I chose Georgetown because I had the intention of that was going to be my pathway. I was going to go work in the senator's yeah. office. And I saw that as my way of doing good in the world. And then I went to Georgetown and I actually was an intern for John Kerry, who was my senator from Massachusetts at the time. Yeah. And he was lovely, but I just was a little disillusioned that that was, that government didn't work the way that I thought it was. I remember uh, standing yeah. in the bowels of the hallways of the U.S. Senate, because there's all these hallways underneath the Senate building, so they don't have to walk outside. And I remember standing yeah. next to John Kerry, and he was having this conversation with Jesse Helms, who to me was just this force for terrible things. And they were being so collegial and making this deal about something. And I remember thinking, yeah. how could you possibly do that? That's the idealist in me was like, no, we, what we do is we fight for the little guy. Like, so I rethought all of this and I was like, okay, then you know what? I'll be a political journalist. I'll report the news. That would be my way of doing good in the world is like illuminating stories. But all the while I had all these work study jobs because we didn't have enough money for me to pay for college easily without financial aid. Yeah. And so I was working in the career center. I was working in the dean of students office and met all these people who had dedicated their life to higher ed. And I was like, oh, that's a job. Mm. You get to work with kids all day. You get to be in schools. And I love school so much. I just can't. Mm -hmm. I've always loved everything about school. And so when I moved to California right after graduation from Georgetown, I was like, the only thing I really am qualified to do is work at a school. Um, and so it was all kind of by happenstance. Uh, and then, and then yeah. gradually it made sense to me that all along it's what I was meant to do. And my parents knew it meant all along, but um, I just needed to get there. And I wonder either in kind of high school or at Georgetown or in any of these work study jobs, were there teachers or mentors or coaches who, in addition to your family, obviously, were influential to you or inspired you in any of those ways, to be a public servant or to be an educator? Yeah, I would say there were all of these people that were incredibly inspiring to me. My 10th grade history teacher, she taught me a class on shaping of the modern world, and she ended up becoming the principal of my high school after I left. Um, mm. And she was really inspirational to me. And what's her name? Sue Zakowitz. And, mm. and then when I went to Georgetown, I ended up working in the career center for the executive director of the career center was an, a woman named Jane Hopkins Carey, who 
uh, was a graduate of Georgetown and I ended up, you know, like I babysat for her kids and she just totally took me under her wing. And she actually, so I graduated from Georgetown a semester early. So I had some AP credit that let me do that. And I was really working hard to save my parents' money. And so I finished college in three and a half years. And she actually had an opening, a full-time position opening in the career center that she hired me at the start of my senior year in a full-time job making $26,000 a year. I literally thought I had like, I was, it was like this windfall because when you're, you know, a college student, all of a sudden somebody wants to pay you. And so she let me arrange my schedule so I could take my, um, my final semester of classes and work full time. So she worked my schedule around that. And then I stayed there. So I graduated in December of, of 1994 and then she let me stay through the spring. And so I had one year of full time work that helped me really get my feet under me to figure out, oh, is this something that I want to do? And she also really was a model to me of what it meant to be a working mother. You know, at that time, obviously I didn't, well, at, at that time, actually, I was engaged to my first husband, my high school sweetheart. And, and so mm. I was getting ready to get married and I was envisioning, you know, what's my life going to be like? I intend to have children and, ha- and is it ever possible to have, to live this totally fulfilling life as a spouse and a mother and as a professional and really yeah. and not sacrifice. And she demonstrated to me that it really was possible to do all those things well mm. and to live your values. And so she was really important to me. Wow. And so you came out to LA, you did a master's that sort of turned into a PhD. And where did you go kind of f- from there? What was your step from that academic environment into the professional world? So when I got to LA, I actually got a job at Southwestern Law School. And again, it was, I was back mm. before the internet was really a thing. And so you had to kind of find jobs that were posted in the LA Times or in random places. And so I got yeah. hired as a communications associate at Southwestern, you know, helping them build their first website and writing speeches for their dean and doing a little bit of law school admission. And then after three years of working there, I then I had just started to realize that admission was really what I was super interested in. You know, I had I dabbled in all these different areas of higher education, and I was offered a job mm-hmm. as senior assistant director of admission at USC, um, managing their scholarship program. And so I moved to there and in 1998, and within two and a half months of working there, I got pregnant with my first child, which is not necessarily something I would recommend to people. Yeah. And again, I just it didn't manage all of this perfectly, but again, that, that was another group of people that really allowed me to work my schedule. A person who remains one of my very best friends now is a woman named Robin Doran, who she was my boss at USC and she and I are just about the same age. She was the person who was like, you know what, you take the time that you need, we're going to change your recruiting. And like, and again, I had only worked there for like three months and she was like, we'll change your recruiting territory so you don't have to travel as much because you're going to have a young baby. We want you to be able to stay here. So we'll give you lots of territory in Southern California so that you can get home at night. And again, these people just made an incredible difference in my life. Another person at USD was a man named Joe Allen, who's sort of a legend. He is a legend in the field. He was the vice provost for enrollment. And he was a person who saw something in me and was essentially, he was my West Coast dad. He Mm. was really someone who was like, you know what, Um, we're going to make this work for you. We want you to be here. We think you do good work. And it's important that you have a fully formed family life. So those those two people made USC work for me. And then 
Joe very, very tragically passed away in the spring of 2001. So I had been at USC for just for about three years at that point. When he died, a lot of us who had been there really ended up stepping into kind of leadership roles. And that was that was when I started to be an associate director of admission and started to supervise a lot more people because we just were completely bonded as a team because we, this person who had meant kind of everything to us as a boss wasn't there anymore. And we felt we owed it to him to really keep going this thing that we had created. Because I think everybody knows that USC admissions yeah. had, you know, this is at a time when it was becoming such a hot school and we felt like we were exploding, yeah. providing incredible access. I mean, that was what I loved about that job is I, Oversaw yeah, I, mean, I was program, giving said, money right? to yeah. kids who otherwise couldn't do this thing. And so anyway, it was just a, and you know, it was a very powerful time in my life. And I was also, you know, he died right as I was in getting a divorce from my first husband. And so there's just this mm. kind of crazy crisis in my life. But I had all of these people around me that just swooped in yeah. and took care of me because my family was far away and they were doing everything they could. And so I've always been so grateful to this subset of people who made all the difference in the world at a time when I was really struggling. Well, you also made the point, this gets back to what we were talking about earlier with regard to gender, that when you realized that you were pregnant with your first child and what kind of challenge was that going to be to the work you were doing to have two different people right up here and sort of a, well, I guess both were bosses technically. But, but, yeah, but, yeah, but one of them was, yeah, more like up here, yeah. Yeah, more, one was more like, one was the same age and one was this sort of legendary guy, right, who both made you feel that they would support you and your growing family and make it work was huge, it sounds Absolutely. like, for you at that time and for so many women who start families in the workplace mm -hmm. and don't feel that level of support. That is one of the problems sure. in our society and, and, and challenges for women. Well, and I feel like it's something that I've carried through with me the whole time that I've been, you know, when, when I was at USC and when I have been at Harvard-Westlake, that I will do everything in my power to support people who need whatever kind of dispensation, whether it's because yeah. they are pregnant, whether it's because they have a sick child or they have a sick family member or because they themselves, you know, need mental health support. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a million, and because it, it was also my experience that I was inspired to work harder for those people. I would like, I gave my everything to that work because I was so supported. And so my feeling is that when people feel supported in the workplace, most people are inspired to give everything that they have. You will get the best out of people when you make them feel known and seen and understood. And so, yeah. and so that has been a mission of mine um, and something I certainly promise that I would do when I started this job, um, now that I'm supervising a larger yeah. group of people. And contrast that with, you know, John Kerry and, and Jesse Helms, you know, <laughs> is it, it, there's, there's a certain amount of distance from the people that they're helping. Yeah. Not that politics can't be a way to help people, but you felt to help yourself. And now in this role, you're able to demonstrate that help to For others sure. firsthand. And so what about the work, the admission work? Why were you drawn to admission when you were at Southwestern and, and then at USC? You were there for how long? I was at USC officer? for seven years. What did you love about the work? Obviously, USC was a rocket ship during that, that time, and it became and still is just a very hot school and a school that has only become mm -hmm. more desirable among Harvard-Westlake students and the world at large. What did you enjoy about that yeah, work? Yeah, I, 
again, it felt like this way of doing good in the world, of actually giving kids opportunities, seeing something in them that maybe they didn't even know that they had. Because I think that you know that there was a long time, when, even when I was at Harvard Westlake, that I sort of anticipated that I would go back to admission. Um, I intent, like I thought I would That's be right. at Harvard yep. Westlake. It was, you know, while my kids were young, and then probably transition back to. And you had an opportunity to. Go become a dean of admission. I did. I did. Yeah, I was offered a yeah. job in 2018 as a dean of admission at a small liberal arts college. And, but uh, from my perspective, unfortunately, admission at most places has really changed to no longer be a place where you can take those kinds of chances. Um, you know, it, they're they're mm. held so accountable for rising test scores, and you know that all of your metrics have to go up every year. You have to get more applications and they have to be of better quality and that's not sustainable and it also misses the point that these are kids you know they're just they're not fully formed adults yet and so what i loved is back then at usc because yes we were becoming a hot school but i could still read an application of some diamond in the rough like who you saw some spark you know you met them at a school visit Maybe they went to a school that was totally under-resourced and they were taking advantage of every possible thing that they could. And you were like, I don't care that that kid has below a thousand on their SAT. I don't care because mm -hmm. that doesn't speak to who they are and what they have to contribute. And I've always been super mindful of equity issues. You know, I think about my own upbringing and the fact of the matter is that while we did not have lots of money, I had so many advantages because of who my parents were, because they were educated and they knew where to go in order to help support me. No, I didn't have test prep or any of those kinds of things, but I had, again, this cultural capital. And I looked around me at lots of people I went to high school and just by virtue of the conditions of their birth, they didn't have those opportunities. I wasn't even aware of this whole other subset of kids who had crazy advantages, you know, I mean, just incredible advantages. I was only sort of aware yeah. of the, the slight leg up that I felt that I had, you know, and to be honest, I mean, even back then, I was keenly aware of race issues, you know, growing up in New England, I saw constant examples of both overt and covert racism and, and the mm -hmm. way that it manifested itself. I mean, I, I remember being aware of how my AP classes, there were only like, we only offered five of them at Brockton High, but there were no black children in, at a school that was majority black. Major there right, were right. no black children in there. And I knew that back then. And, um, yeah. and so that thread has been woven through my whole life and it became really acute to me, especially working at USC and existing in the neighborhood where USC is and looking around and thinking and, and to be to USC's credit, they have worked very hard actually to create neighborhood partnerships to allow for students from the city of Los Angeles to be able to attend. And so we were really starting a lot of that good work. And so that's why admission felt really meaningful to me. And then even when I started because the whole way I became acquainted with Harvard Westlake was because I started reading applications for them. And so even when I started right, reading applications right. for Harvard Westlake, I started to see kids at private schools who honestly, yes, they had the privilege of this independent school education, but many of them had 
other kinds of things that they had overcome, whether it was a learning difference or, I mean, let's be honest, just because somebody comes from financial means does not mean that their parents are present, does not mean that they have, you know, that their mental health has been supported. Like they're, they're, I always quote my dad when I decided to take the job at Harvard Westlake and I said to him, I was like, how am I going to go work at this fancy school? And he said, every kid needs adults in their lives who care about them. And just because somebody has money doesn't mean they have everything. And he's like, maybe part of the good that you can do in the world is actually both helping the kids in that environment who don't have, who don't have it all. And also for the kids who seemingly do, if you can make them more aware of both their their mm-hmm. privilege and about inequity in the world, and if you can inspire them to move into the world into a space that wants to make things more equitable and more just, then you've done good work because those people are going to be powerful. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. and I've tried not to make that a rationalization for choosing to work in this environment. I really do feel on a daily basis like I'm actually doing good in the world, both for the kids of extreme privilege and the kids in the Harvard Westlake community with very little. And so that's a perfect segue. So you get asked at some point, you've been reading Harvard Westlake applications, you've been at USA for seven years, you get asked to join the Dean team at Harvard Westlake and you kind of go through, you you have quoted your dad many times about kind of counseling him around taking this role. You come to Harvard Westlake, kind of what were your initial impressions and you stayed a dean at the school for a very long time. What did you love about that work? And did you find that your goals around supporting kids in all the ways you've described were achieved? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, admission is so transactional and you meet kids on the road and they suck up to you yeah. <laughs> in order to curry favor because they know you have some influence on whether they get in or not. And then they sort of drift out of your life. And maybe if you're lucky, you see them on campus every once in a while when they matriculate, but you don't really stay in touch with very many of them. And I thought, I really want to know kids on a deeper level. So obviously, deaning allowed me to do that. And what I ended up loving about Harvard-Westlake was this idea that, first of all, yes, like it's an amazing school and the kids are really smart and all that kind of stuff. But it was also a place where excellence in kind of all forms was honored, like it was cool to be a super good actor or a really good artist, or if you were good at science bowl, or, you know, it it just was this place where people were like, you do you, you know, like whatever it is that you love to do, I think it's cool that you do that. For some kids that was straight up academics and for other kids that was something else. And it struck me that in some ways we were getting a bad rap as only being the right school for a certain kind of kid. You know, people had us pigeonholed as like, oh, it's just fancy and they're all brilliant and all they, it's super competitive and all they care about is college. And it just didn't feel that way to me in actually knowing the kids and the families. And so anyway, the, more, the longer I went on, the just more attached I got to these kids who um, were really so genuinely hopeful about the world and about their ability to do good in it. To finish up, I wanted to ask their kind of a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles. We are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So what is Beth Slattery's favorite movie? Oh, goodness. Can I say a couple? Um, sure, okay. So I would say I am a sucker for um, the sort of good rom-com. 
I mm-hmm. love When Harry Met Sally. I love Say Anything, which is this teen Cameron Crowe yeah. flick from the 90s that just John reminds Cusack. me. John yeah. Cusack. Yes. Maybe it's 89. I can't remember. And and I'm also a, a baseball sucker, so I, I love me some Bull Durham. So, yeah, I oh. I tend to appreciate very serious movies, but, I, it, but I'd rather watch something kind of funny. Oh, those are good choices. Secondly, what is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? You have said you are not a good cook. You, no. you said that earlier. So um, if it's something someone in your family makes or if it's a, a restaurant, a meal at a restaurant that you So love. I would say I have yet to have bad Indian food. Mm. And I love Indian foods. In particular, honestly, just some dal and rice. That is like my perfect mm. meal. I'm not a vegetarian, but I probably could be. I don't love to eat meat. And so, um, mm-hmm. so sort of a good rice and beans or rice and lentils or but Indian food in particular is really my favorite. Great. Also, what is your favorite place in Los Angeles? It could be a part of town or a oh, neighborhood or street or? It's a, a baseball field. I love O'Malley Family Field, Harvard mm-hmm. Westlakes. I love Dodger Stadium. Baseball is is one of those threads that is woven through my whole life and is... You're a Red Sox, grew up a Red Sox fan. I grew up a Red right? Sox fan and I would say though I probably am a bigger Dodger fan right now, which pains my family. Um, although <laughs> ever since the Red Sox let Mookie Betts go, my father can't yeah. really follow them right now. So he's okay with me being a Dodger fan. For good reason. That um, was... Yes. No, they, it's um, my, my... Good for the Dodgers. Right, but... for sure. Um, Strange for the Red Sox. You know, I, you know that my, my son is a baseball player and yep. I sort of the greatest joy I have is actually watching my children play sports. I love every minute of, I'm a huge sports fan. And so I just watching them play because they love it so much. My daughter's a soccer player and I've become an enormous soccer fan. We actually went to the uh, Women's World Cup in France last year and wow. uh, because uh, my daughter begged and it was this, again, amazing once in a lifetime kind of experience. So anytime I can have an experience at a baseball field, at a soccer field, that's that's my favorite place to be. All right, last question. And I should say that I've asked a few of your colleagues this question, and some of them quote you <laughs> in their answer. Uh, so my question is, you are a parent of several children. I have a two-year-old daughter. The question is, what is your best parenting advice? And that is advice not only from your own lens as a parent, but also your many years as a college counselor and working with so many parents and their kids. Um, Kind of through both of those lenses, what's your best advice? I think I'm going to repeat what my colleagues might have said, because it is my mantra, which is love the child you have. That's the quote, uh, which, which, by the way, seems very self-evident. I have, (laughs) I love the child I have more than anything. Why is it not as intuitive as uh, it may seem? I think that we have these kids and we have dreams about what their lives will be like. And many of those dreams, I think, have to do with the things that would make us happy or the way that we see the world. But they don't always acknowledge the way that this emerging person sees the world and what matters to them. And I also tell people all the time that when I had my son, I I falsely believed that somehow because I gave birth to him and I was raising him, that he would be just like me. And he's nothing like me. Um, And as he got older, it became evident to me that my choices were to love him as he was and accept him as he was, or it was to really jeopardize our relationship. And, Mm. you know, many people, because I've told it a million times, know the story that, you know, for me, a lot of it came up with 
he he didn't love everything about school. He loved everything about baseball. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time butting heads about what, you know, how much homework he was doing and what classes he was taking. And that all seemed very silly. And then when he went off to college and he went to he went to Berkeley uh, to play baseball. And again, it like seemed like, oh, wow, I've, I've just hit the jackpot as a parent. Like he gets to go to Berkeley and, and it's not going to cost me that you get much. To watch him and play I baseball. get to watch him play baseball. <laughs> and he was miserable and mm. he didn't get to play. He got redshirted. And he came to me the summer before his sophomore year, and he said, I want to go to community college. I, 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 I'm not going to get a chance to play baseball there. And I had this moment of, oh, my God, he's not going to get a degree from Berkeley. Like, and what will everybody think when I tell – because especially mm. in the Harvard-Westlake community, what will people think? Um, mm. And pretty quickly, I was like, love the child you have. He's telling you what he wants to do. And he went to community college and had this extraordinary experience and then transferred. Now he's, you know, back at a four-year school playing baseball. You know, he got drafted in 2019, you know, out of community college. And it was the greatest thing for him. And and our relationship has been solidified. We're incredibly close. He, I think I'm his person who he tells most things to. And that's because I think I've proven to him that I love him exactly the way that he is. And just very quickly, um, I, um, in proof of that, this over this break during the pandemic, he's, you know, he's 21 now, and he decided that what did he want for Christmas? He wanted to get a tattoo sleeve. And it's all of, um, of images of Los Angeles. So it's um, the Hollywood sign and the Griffith Observatory. He feels very connected to where he's grown up. And yeah. I told Sharon Cusio that he did this. And she's like, what did you think? And I was like, you know what? It, it means a lot to him. I love it. I'm actually super glad that he was able to say, you know what, this is something I want to do and it means something to me and he's an independent human being. And so I don't care. Um, you know, he's not hurting anybody by that. Good for you. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and our relationship has blossomed because I love him exactly the way that he is, even though it's totally different than me. That is tremendous advice. And the proof of that is that others are sharing it as well. Mm-hmm. They've heard you say that you've, They've heard you share your story, and I think other people who work with kids and their parents in college counseling have have seen it go sometimes the other mm-hmm. way and seen the consequences of that. So I really appreciate that advice. I think sure. a lot of other people appreciate it too. And this has been a great conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I love this. This is The Supporting Cast. Mm-hmm.